Well, hello there. Welcome back to another week on Sluts and Scholars, where we make your sex smarter and your smart sexier. I am Simone. And I'm Nicoletta. And this week, we have a great friend of mine, Dr. David Lay. He is a clinical psychologist practicing in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He is also an educator, speaker, and author of a few books, one including Insatiable Wives and The Myth of Sex Addiction, and Ethical Porn for Dicks. Recently, he launched a video series featuring the likes of Dan Savage called No More Sex Shame. Thank you so Uh -uh. much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a fun show. I'm glad you guys are doing this. Uh, Did your last name inspire you to become a sex educator? Oh, yeah, clearly. I mean, I, I really wrestled with it. I had two options. I could be a sex doctor, right? Or I could be a politician involved in a sex scandal. <laughs> you um, can. There's still time for both. Yeah. Well, you know, I thought about it. I mean, I really did. But but clearly, Anthony Weiner ultimately holds the title. <laughs> he really um, does. Yeah, and he continues to defend it too. I mean, uh, you know, I, I've got better things to do. So we are super excited to have you on the show now because of everything that's going on politically, um, revolving around sex addiction, because that is something that you have spoken out against for a long time. Vociferously. So can you tell us a little bit about your work um, challenging sex addiction as a practice and a treatment? Right. So, you know, the past couple of weeks have been very interesting. And as soon as Harvey Weinstein... Uh, you know, claimed to be a sex addict and, and that that was why he had sexually harassed all of these beloved actresses. Um, it, my phone just started blowing up. Um, you know, I, a few years ago, I, <clears throat> I wrote the book, The Myth of Sex Addiction. And I wrote it after, you know, I really went into the field trying to understand um, maybe I was wrong not uh, believing that sex addiction was a good answer, um, a good description, you know, a good treatment model. Um, but I spent a year and a half <clears throat> interviewing and reading and visiting and, um, re- uh, you know, just trying to understand this whole model. I ended up basically arguing that it is a belief system um, close to being a cult and that it has uh, become a way for it. Ultimately, it does a few different things. One is that it is a way for society to shame and stigmatize um, the sexual behavior of people they don't like. So gays and bisexuals um, are at three times the risk of being called uh, sex addicts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sex addiction started in the early 1980s. Yeah, I was going to ask, so how did this become, how did it become a myth? Like who created this? Well, it started in the early 1980s after um, AIDS and HIV were sweeping the country Everybody was afraid of their sexuality. And unfortunately, most therapists have very little training in sexuality. So when these people who were really afraid of their sexual desires went to therapists, mm-hmm. uh, mental health therapists didn't have anything to offer them. So the uh, addictions therapists, substance addiction therapists, <clears throat> they said, well, basically, what if we just treat you know, s- sexuality like a craving? Um, and it kind of worked. They, you know, they used 12-step groups, and they, they kind of helped people to – suppress their sexuality. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, what they ended up doing, we now know 40 years later, is that they just really ended up shaming people about their sexuality. And that's what we that's what we find now is that the belief that somebody is a sex addict is connected to their religious values and it's connected to their sexual shame, not to 
um, you know, really any struggles or problems or conflicts around their sexuality. Sex addicts addicts don't actually have more sex than anybody else. They just feel worse about it. Oh, that hurts my heart yeah. so much. So what are some reasons or what are some things that people have said or sexual acts or behaviors that they've maybe described to you as a professional and said, I'm a sex addict, this is what I do, that may actually just be like normal, okay things. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. you know, so... Yeah, so this one poor young guy came to me, he was 18 years old, and he was just desperately afraid that he was addicted to masturbation. And the guy, <clears throat> he uh, was afraid, <clears throat> sorry, he was afraid to take a shower because he couldn't be alone with his own naked body. And uh, I love you know, when being I, alone with my own naked body. Yeah, who doesn't, you know? <laughs> um, I, I'm alone with my naked body right now underneath my clothes. Um, <laughs> You know, really, I mean, everybody in the world is a pervert because they're all naked underneath their clothes. Fucking pervs. Um, I so this kid, this kid was just desperately afraid of masturbation and was concerned that he was addicted to masturbation. But it turns out he was he was only masturbating once a week. And <laughs> well, then I, no, I I'm definitely fuck. Yeah, we're addicted. Yeah. So this guy, a pussy, but he had grown up. He had grown up in a deeply religious family mm-hmm. where you know any sex other than monogamy, heterosexuality, was was sinful and unhealthy. And now he was at college and he was exploring his own life and sexuality, and really struggling. And that that is the the conflict that is driving a lot of people who really are mm-hmm. struggling and afraid of their sexuality. But I have the a question. Har- oh, can I just ask a Harvey clarify? Wein- oh, yeah. yeah well, I'm just curious because that's obviously not a case of of sex addiction or sex addiction or even unhealthy sexual behavior aside from right. the shame, right? Uh, be yeah. Masturbating once a week, but I do know people who do identify as sex and love addicts and don't come from a religious family and don't come from have never been shamed for their sexuality. They've just recognized that the way that they have sex in the world is used um, either to numb or to mm-hmm. gratify themselves in a way that they don't deem healthy or okay. So how does that fit into uh, uh, removing the pathology of, of sexuality right. uh, and like so dispelling pretty, the sex addiction yeah, myth? So pretty consistently, you know, 90 to 95% of sex addicts in the, in the country, and this is really only a United States thing, this this doesn't seem to happen outside the United States, which really makes you wonder. Mm. Um, they're all men. And so then we have to start answering um, some questions or at least asking some questions. But the, about, wait, sorry, what, you said they're all men? Yeah. Um, 90 to 95% of sex addicts in the United States are all men. And okay. men use sexuality as a way to cope with negative feelings. You know, what, what you just said, um, you, know, using, you know, using sex to numb yourself and such like that. Um, that sex is actually really, really good at good for that. The problem is that good most for men, yeah, it's good for numbing. It's uh-huh. good for it, it, you know after short after term alleviation of feelings. Yeah, after nine eleven, how many people you know went home and made love to their loved ones so that they they didn't feel alone and, and scared? You know, it, sex is a really marvelous way to help us deal with negative feelings. The problem comes. When men um, uh, don't have other ways to cope with their negative feelings, women are really good in most cases at developing other ways to cope with their negative feelings. Huh. Men don't. A lot of the people I know who identify as sex addicts are women. Just throwing that out there. Interesting. Yeah, and every woman that I've ever treated who had been called a sex addict, really at the end of the day, this was just a form of slut shaming. 
This was them being told by doctors or nurses or other people that they like more sex than somebody else thought they should. You know, Kinsey said it best. The def- definition of, of a nymphomaniac, a sex addict in today's world, er, is anybody who has more sex than a therapist. Ah. <laughs> and, and, and so really, that, that ultimately, I think, raises the question, though, how much sex is too much? And the, the sex addiction model promotes the idea that if you have sex on average, if you have an orgasm on average, once a day, every day, for up for three months, then that's too much. You're what? A sex that's crazy. Who wrote, no, who wrote those who, rules? Who picked that? Yeah, I'm not making that up. That's, Do you know um, where that comes uh, that's, from? Yeah, that's a psychiatrist named Marty Kafka, who um, was the one Fuck who promoted you, the. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he, was, uh, he promoted the idea um, for uh, sex addiction to get into the DSM five under the under the name hypersexual. But disorder. it's not right. But it's not. It was ultimately rejected. Now, what I pointed out to Marty and to others is. You know, I know women, maybe you guys, who are multi-orgasmic and can blow their entire monthly average in a single night. Yes! (laughs) Yes, yes. I won an award for Vagina of Steel at this all-women's festival that I was at. That is prestigious. And I came like 20 times. It was incredible. now, now Now, if you had if you had sex or 10 more orgasms in that entire month, then I'm sorry, Simone, you're a sex ad. Uh oh, that weekend, that weekend did me in. So, yeah, I mean, so, this isn't to say that there, and whatever, there are certain people that call it different things out there, but um, some of the folks who speak out against sex addiction will say things like, instead, out of control sexual behavior or unhealthy or yeah. problematic. So, how do we deal with folks who, who are struggling and using sex as a, an emotional thing instead of calling them addicts? Mm-hmm. How do they get help? Right. Well, uh, at first, we have to stop talking about the sex. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when I walk into my doctor's office and I, uh, I'm sneezing, my doctor doesn't say, David, you've got a sneezing addiction. You need to stop sneezing. <laughs> Instead, my doctor tries to figure out, do I have a What's bacterial infection? Sneeze? Yeah. Do I have viruses? Do I have allergies? Let's treat each of those differently because it's really important. When, you know, when we see somebody, like you said, Simone, who is using sex in what, what we would deem kind of an unhealthy way, and then I think that raises the, the very important question of what is healthy sexuality. Yeah. But, mm. you know, if we see somebody then, then we need to understand what the function of sex is for them and help them figure out the root causes and treat those. Unfortunately, the sex addiction model just treats the symptoms, and mm-hmm. the only way it treats the symptoms – is by teaching people to stop Suppress having sex. It. But so do you yeah. think there is any benefit in suppression of the symptoms? Because to follow along with your medical analogy, if I am having a bad cough that's due to bronchitis, like sure, I'm going to be taking antibiotics, but I'm probably also going to be taking a cough suppressant because like coughing is fucking annoying mm-hmm. and hurts my right. throat. Like too much <clears throat> face fucking. I don't know. <laughs> I think, yeah, well. Sorry. You know, Simone, <laughs> I think that, well, I, yeah, I, lo- I love the side comment. Um, Simone, you know, I think I think it's a really good question, and unfortunately, that that's one of the critical things that we can't answer right now because, after forty years of the sex addiction treatment model existing, there is absolutely no evidence that it works. There's mm. absolutely no evidence that it actually helps people. Now, that's an that's an important thing, especially when people like Harvey Weinstein are paying fifteen hundred dollars a day for this treatment. Well, and I I have clients that go and do, you know, SLAA, Sex and Love, um, Addicts Anonymous. And, um, you know, I mean, some swear by it. They're really fulfilled by it. Well, some some are fulfilled by it. Some, you know, don't feel like they have any other options, but they're like, this is Mm -hmm. my only option to get treatment. 
And so what do we what do we do for folks who that might be helpful for, but on the other hand might also be getting mm-hmm. messages um, and shame filtered yeah. through that support? I try to vaccinate those patients against the harm. I try to help them recognize that, you know, there's an awful lot of morality embedded in those groups, you know, that, mm-hmm. that are defining what kinds of relationship, what kind of sex, what kind of love is okay. And it's really up to them to decide what is right for them. And mm-hmm. then I think, again, that goes back to that question. We need to help people figure out and decide, you know, what is healthy sexuality. You know, you mentioned out of control sexual behavior, and that's a concept that you know, is now being explored in a treatment kind of setting by Doug Brown Harvey and Michael Vigorito. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they, they they promote, you know, these principles of sexual health, things like consent and honesty and mutuality and shared values and attention to safety. Um, but, you know, none of that includes monogamy or heterosexuality or, you know, that it's only with one person, at one, you know, at a time. And ultimately, that's where that's where the move needs to happen. Historically, mm-hmm. the sex addiction model and religion, basically, and sex addiction model came from religion. Religious-based therapists diagnose sex addiction more than anybody else. All of the 12-step models, whether it's sex and love addicts and honors, they are religiously based. So we have to recognize that. Now, the religion's approach to sexuality and sex addiction's approach to sexuality is an act-based model where it's saying this kind of sex, whether it's anal sex or group sex or homosexuality, that is unhealthy just because. Mm-hmm. Now we're moving into a, a more sophisticated kind of area where we can say, look, you can have great sex um, in all of these ways, but you've got to do it in a healthy way. So, you know, what I what I tell kids, actually, young men in my new book, Ethical Porn for Dicks, is, you know, don't come on a girl's face unless you can be a gentleman while you do it. And what that how, means. How, yeah, how does one do that? What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, well. It means I have to have talked to you in advance. It means I yeah. have to have your consent. It means I have to know, are you into oh, it? Duh. I also have, you know, I have to have some thought about what it means to me. I can't just do it because I saw it in porn and I think that's what you do. Mm. So I does have a question. Por- oh, go ahead, Simone. Um, I was just wondering, uh, coming back to the idea of like sex and love addicts anonymous, like not really working as a as a treatment, I'm just curious, or because it doesn't exist, does that? Do you also think that something like Overeaters Anonymous doesn't work, or is it this is just specifically sex focused? Well, so you know, so you get in, you you, you really open up a can of worms here because mm, I love worms. At, <laughs> at, at, well, I like those gummy worms. They taste better than the worms you dig night up. Night crawlers, right? David. Um, night crawlers. Yeah. Oh my god. I yeah, feel like what, this what conversation could go somewhere like so <laughs> different. <laughs> Yeah, it, this is yeah, this is now the dirty version of how to eat fried worms. Right? <laughs> um, so uh, the twelve-step model um, has been really extended in a lot of ways, and um, at this point, it appears that it has been extended far beyond its real value. Mm. Um, the the twelve-step model, and I and I send you know folks to it. However, I do so really, really carefully, helping them to recognize the religious base of it, also helping to prepare some folks like women that they may be, you know, kind of predated upon, that there are guys who troll those 12-step groups looking for vulnerable women to exploit. That's so funny Um, because I feel like I've, at one point in my young life, went with a friend and I was definitely trolling hot dudes at the AA meeting. At At an AA meeting, yeah. Not as bad. uh, 
what we know now in in some some research over the past few years is that the 12-step treatment may help about 12 to 15% of the people that go to it, but unfortunately, it may actually harm about 40% of the people that go to it. And we, you know, ultimately, 70% of the people who could get diagnosed with alcohol or substance dependence or addiction at any given time, they get better on their own with, by returning to a moderate level of use um, without ever going to treatment. But the 12-step model kind of promotes this idea of abstinence first um, and, and sobriety. And even, secondly, for, they, even for sex sex addiction? Yeah. They yeah, promote abstinence? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's fucking yeah, insane. They, yeah, and they tell them, you know, you can't have sex or masturbate for 90 days. <gasps> yeah. Um, and that that's And that that's how you get sober. Well, well no, a lot but, of them say then, like, if they have a sip, whether it's alcohol or I don't know how you have a sip of sex, but, you yeah. know, just the tip, just whatever. The tip. And yeah. so, That's exactly how you just said. Yeah. <laughs> but saying like, okay, well, I don't trust myself enough to have just a little bit. Yeah. Huh. And so, you know, we assume that the 12-step model is the pinnacle of treatment. But 12-step is not actually treatment. 12-step is a support coping. system. Support. Coping. Yeah. And, and, well, sometimes it's coping. More it's about social support and mm. about having some accountability. Oh. Yeah. I think that's really valuable and important. But it's not it's not the end all be all. It's not the only answer and it's not all of the answer. Can I ask you a, a sort of specific question? This conversation that I had the other day is just really occurring in my mind right now. So I have a friend who really feels bad about fucking. Like is like fucking makes me feel empty. I do it. I do it because it numbs how fucking empty I feel. I fu- I'm, he, he's like a hot guy and he can just fuck whenever. And like, what is, not like diagnose him, but like, wh- what do you say to that? Like, he, he feels like he is a sex addict. He feels mm-hmm. like, like there's something obviously unhealthy going on. But would you just say that there's some other underlying mental issue that's going on that the symptom of which is just this... This empty fucking, or I mean, I don't know. I yeah. would love to hear what you say. What what I would say to that if someone like came into a session with me and David, tell me your thoughts. But like, it's n- not usually just one thing. Like, I would want to know where they came from, who talked to them about sex, how did they learn about sex growing up, what were their relationships like with their family. Um, I hear your puppy in the background. Hi, puppy. Um, what were their relationships like? Um, you know, what were their first relationships like? Mm. What were their experiences with sex? Um, all those types of things. Interesting. Like, how did they yeah. get this view? What would you say, David? Well, you know, 90% of alleged sex addicts have a major mental health condition, whether it's anxiety or depression. And we need to treat and pay attention to those conditions. Um, you know, if somebody is if somebody is repetitively engaging in a behavior that they ultimately feel really bad about afterwards, I always ask them an interesting question. Is there a chance you actually want to feel bad? Is there a chance that you mm. want to feel uh. guilty about this, about yourself, about your life? Does this give you a way to kind of express um, those negative feelings? That makes sense. Why might someone want to feel bad or guilty or shameful? Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, you know, I treated this one guy who um, worked in a, he had grown up in a uh, really highly 
um, uh, conservative kind of um, penitente community of the Catholics, where they still engage in self-flagellation. Ooh, and, you know, sorry. He learned, yeah, not, not <laughs> a sexy kinky way. sexy you way. Know? So that was a reaction. Yeah. <laughs> right. He learned that, you know, when you do something that is sinful that you feel bad about, you beat yourself up, literally. Um, You know, how many of us do that in a metaphorical kind of emotional way? We beat ourselves up. Like we deserve punishment Um, or aren't deserving of something. Yeah. You know, then the other question I I, I would be asking, you know, is, is that what you want sex to be? Is that all sex is? You know, are you feeling empty because you want something more than this, this physical act. Yeah. Well, that may be why you are feeling empty and numb because you're not getting what you're actually looking for. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I, I treat this one guy, um, you know, who was in the pickup artist community for a long time. <gasps> and, you know, he told me about how he would pick up these beautiful hot women that made him feel like a stud. And then he had trouble getting an erection with them. And as we went on and talked, he said, you know, really, I recognize I didn't actually like these women. I was just picking them up because of the status symbol. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, yeah, it, it, it's interesting that your penis doesn't get hard when you're trying to have sex with somebody you don't like. Mm-hmm. Maybe you should listen to that. Yeah. yeah. Like, what is your body trying to tell you? Yeah. What is your body trying to tell you? What's your heart trying to tell you? You know, I think that, you know, if somebody is engaging in these kind of moral conflict sorts of feelings, um, then we need to help them explore where those conflicts are coming from. What are the values? You know, again, if he's engaging in a behavior that he feels bad about, let's try and figure out all of the other ways then that you could get the needs met that you're getting out of that behavior in some other different ways. And if I wanted to fuck said hot guy, would you recommend I not? <laughs> um, <laughs> the one you were talking you about know, earlier? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I will just point out that some uh, feelings of emptiness are a hallmark symptom of people with borderline personality disorder. And folks with borderline personality disorder are really good in bed, but really bad at life and bring a whole lot of drama along with it. That's sort of like some truth to that, like, hurtful, crazy hot scale. Oh, yeah. Kind of, yeah. So I, mean, I have a, I have like a selfish question to, to piggyback on that a little bit, but like because so many people are getting this message of like you're an addict, you know that means you're an addict. If you're a, an educator listening or a counselor listening, like what do you do if somebody comes to you and identifies as a sex addict? Because I I mean it can be problematic I think to to argue right. and speak against that right away. How sure. do you yeah? How do you challenge that while still meeting them yeah. where they are? That's a good question. I mean, I um, when a patient comes to me, one of the things I tell them is, you know, I am different here in session with you than I am when I'm on a podcast or when I'm talking on NBC News or on some talk show. There, I've got to take really strong, strong positions in order to get the message across. Mm-hmm. But I have patients that come to me that identify as sex addicts, and I don't argue it with them. Instead, I try to help them identify the pieces that have gotten missed in the sex addiction model. Um, and, you know, and again, mm. I think that's the that's that's the better kind of strategy. Instead of telling somebody, well, you know, we need to we need to help you be sober and stop having sex, and we need to help you stop cheating. Instead, hey, let's talk about what kind of sexual being you want to be. Mm. How can you develop sexual integrity? 
How can you be a sexual person of honor and live the kind of life that you want to live, including your sexuality? Unfortunately, most people don't think about sex except when they're turned on. My job as a therapist, and I think our job as therapists, is to help people start thinking about how to integrate their sexual desires and their values in their waking day-to-day life. Yes, so important. Because then you're kind of like blinded, blindsided. Yes. Blind or whatever. Yeah, exactly. You know, when when we've got those horny goggles on, you know, we're impulsive (laughs) and we make bad judgment. That's hard. That's the way, yeah, that's the way sex works. So is it, would you apply this same thought process to folks who talk about porn addiction? Yeah, I was just going to ask about that because we taught you, you kind of set the principles for like what is a healthy sex life, consensual, safe, all of that. Mm-hmm. And so that has me think, so I, I can understand what kind of sex life with others you shouldn't be having, but I'm curious about what are the guidelines for sex with yourself? And be, like, mm-hmm. can you be addicted to porn? Can you be addicted to masturbation? Is there, is it possible to have too much porn or to like gel off too much? Well, you know, there's no evidence that, you know, that porn addiction is any more real than sex addiction. What there is a lot of evidence of is that pe- men with high libido and people with high libido and high sensation seeking consume more porn. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I really appreciate you saying this, Simone, that, you know, watching porn is about masturbation. 90% of porn use includes masturbation. So whenever we talk about, you know, using too much porn, what we're actually talking about is jerking off too much. Exactly. It's like, it's like the, oh, I smoked weed, but I don't inhale. It's like, no, right. you're fucking That's watching right. porn and you're masturbating. You don't watch now, it for the cinematic quality of all the amazing yeah. films. Oh my God, actually one of the fans on our show sent me this incredible article about like watching queer porn in public space. We'll talk about that another time. Go oh, on. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I have to remind us that, you know, we have a long and dark history of suppressing masturbation. You know, the reason that circumcision is so common in the United States is that Kellogg of Kellogg's Cornflakes promoted circumcision as a way to prevent male masturbation. Wait, you're going to have to make that connection for me because I do not remember that watching the Kellogg commercials. Yeah. It's Cornflakes don't feel good. He thought (laughs) Kellogg's Cornflakes and Graham Crackers would prevent masturbation Um, because bland foods... Bland foods made you less focused on your body sensation, and they believed masturbation was unhealthy. And if you were too focused on your body, you would you would end up jerking off too much. I well, knew I never I, liked cornflakes. Yeah. Now I, I, I think on. obviously they didn't they didn't anticipate s'mores because if you add char- chocolate and marshmallow <laughs> to graham crackers, it's unbelievably sexy. Fucking special K um, with the strawberries. Ooh, ooh yeah. yeah. Oh, there you go. So. If we if we if we find ourselves you know attacking or suppressing masturbation, I've got to ask why? Because people who masturbate more live longer. They have better relationships. They have healthier hearts. Have healthier prostates. Have lower waistlines. We're gonna live so long. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm up to like 250 years at this. Point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, when he, I don't want to give away all of the tidbits from your book, Why? Ethic, Ethical Porn for Dicks, because I want people to buy it and support you and read it. But what are some key takeaways or some key points that you talk about? And they're like, how can I get? It's targeted for male-bodied folks or people yeah. who identify as male. Well, how, what are some takeaways yeah. for ethical porn watching? Yeah, it's and masturbation. For- it's targeted for guys because it is mostly guys who are getting in trouble for porn. Women are rarely getting in trouble for porn. Actually, in Brazil, there was a woman who actually earned the legal right 
to masturbate at work during her break, looking what? at porn on her work computer. Good. I mean, clearly I need her attorney. Um, <laughs> Seriously. But actually a lot of women have read Ethical Porn for Dicks and they've come back to me and they said, oh my God, it's funny. It's great. I learned so much about guys. So that's really cool. But one of the, you know, one of the big things that I think that is going on here is that men increase their use of porn and masturbation when they are not getting the kind of frequency of sex or the kind of sex that they want within their relationship. How are you defining but, kind of sex? Like as some, something well, as specific as like kink versus vanilla or like is it is it more? D all the above. Could be kink versus vanilla. It could also be I'm, I'm monogamous to you but I'm bisexual and sometimes I want dick and you don't have one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so I watch gay porn because that's where I can get that need met. Um, what we need to help guys with, and what I really explore in the book is how to talk about those issues, how to negotiate those kinds of issues in your relationship and talk about your needs, talk with your partner about what porn does for you, what you get out of it so that now you can start negotiating about sex and about, about developing a sexual relationship that sort of meets both your needs. But so can you masturbate too much? So long as you use lube? No, not so much. (laughs) Yeah, there can be physical problems. Yeah, chafing. You don't want chafing. And the answer for that is using lube. Um, The, you know... There is this common belief right now that porn is breaking guys' dicks, that porn, what, masturbating to porn too much is leading to erectile dysfunction. But the reality is that erectile huh. dysfunction in young men is predicted by anxiety, it's predicted by obesity, and it's predicted by lack of sexual experience. But that guy can masturbate to porn real right. easy because that porn there is, is no easy anxiety. To, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that's right. There's no anxiety. You don't have to worry about turning turning it on all you have to do is push the button you know you don't have to buy it dinner um and you know it's you know the porn is going to have an orgasm you don't have to worry about it a quote unquote orgasm that's right what's going for like those maybe more scientific folks out there listening i mean i've heard people talk about just the mechanisms in the brain of why we don't call sex addicting like what's happening in the brain that doesn't make it addicting because you do Mm. feel good after you know most a lot of people you do get a rush of yeah that's, and that's the way sex is supposed to work. That's the way our brain is supposed to work. No matter how much sex you have, your brain keeps working the way it is supposed to work. But in contrast, you know, if you take away alcohol from a long-term alcoholic, they, they can have seizures and die because their brain has become dependent upon that, that chemical in the brain. Uh-huh. If, you, if you take away sex from a long-term you know, sex addict, so to speak, they don't die. Nobody ever died from blue balls. They might get a little That's cranky. what I always say. I feel like people tried to convince me they were going to die of blue balls. Yeah, that, but. Oh, yeah, clearly. But what's going on in the brain during sex, and people talk about, oh, you know, you're addicted to dopamine. But actually, you know, dopamine actually decreases, um, you know, before orgasm. Um, and dopamine is just about learning Now, what can happen when we masturbate a lot is that we are teaching our body and our sexuality what we find sexy and what to respond to. We're teaching our body when to come. Conditioning. Um, Yeah, I totally noticed that. And I noticed that if I'm dating somebody new, I definitely masturbate less because I want my body to be more open to the way they touch me and like the different things that I might not think of personally. 
to make That's orgasm nice. with a new partner easier. I think the positive thing about yeah. conditioning, though, is that you can uncondition and recondition. That's right. And that, and again, that's a learning process. You know, your brain is constantly changing. Mm-hmm. That's what learning is. Um, so, you know, I think that what we need to do, you know, there's research actually that shows that people, if people are addicted to anything right now, they're addicted to talking, talking about the goddamn brain and talking <laughs> about, you know, neuroscience and mm-hmm. blaming everything on the brain because it makes us sound smart. Mm-hmm. But but the reality is, you know, th- there is so much about the brain that we don't understand, and, and there's so much individuality. So many people's brains work differently. And what we find, for instance, is that people who watch more porn, um, they may actually have brains that are slightly different from people who don't watch lots of porn because that's the way they were made. They were made to be a high libido, high sensation-seeking person. And so that comes out sometimes in watching lots of porn or maybe doing lots of skydiving or maybe having, you know, lots and lots of sex because their brain craves and needs higher levels of stimulation in, in order to feel sated. So but it's not that the, well, it's not that the porn made their brain that way. Mm-hmm. Their brain was that way and their behavior is an expression of that. We need so to start we, thinking about yeah. the cause. So could we even flip that? I'm just curious. So let's say you are someone who finds yourself to be extremely monogamous and really require sexual fidelity of your partner. And your partner, it turns out, is someone who is, as you said, high libido sensation seeking, who wants to go out and like fuck lots of people. Would you say that encouraging that partner to watch copious amounts of pornography would satiate that desire or... Is that not how it works? Or maybe find a partner who's more on the same page. Yeah, but like if you're committed to spending your lives with each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I think I will roll it back a little bit. And I think that, you know, as Nicoletta said, what we really need to do is we need to help people understand themselves and negotiate relationships from Mm. that place of self-understanding. Now, I do see lots and lots of guys who use, you know, watching porn or you know, picture collecting off, you know, apps like Tinder or Grindr or whatever mm-hmm. um, as a as a way to stay um, uh, faithful to their wife. They mm-hmm. don't you know, they, they don't they don't step out and actually have sex with anybody, but they crave and seek that novelty. And so they get it in that kind of distant sort of um, way. However, if they have never gone to their wife and said, look, this is how I am, you know, staying faithful to you because I'm so committed to you. Mm-hmm. Um then their wife probably is going to think that the porn or the picture collecting is cheating. Yeah, I mean, because mm. there's a lot of people out there that that do consider it cheating, but are you saying it's more because they're not so a little more honest and open about it? Yeah, because they haven't negotiated that role within their relationship mm. or even within themselves. So I want to go on a little bit of a tangent, but since we don't have that much time left, I really wanted to talk about this and firstly give our listeners maybe a word of the day. Um, But I think it does fit into our conversations, and that is cuckolding. Um, So for people out there, (laughs) something like that, how would you define cuckolding, David? Um, well, see, you know, there is a direct relationship. My book, my writing about sex addiction actually came from my book about cuckolding um, because there was a guy in the book who wanted to watch his wife um, have sex with a black man. Um, and he was so obsessed with it that he ended up getting divorced three times because the wives didn't want to do it. Um, and I said, you in think the book, he'd ask them to- before they got married? Yeah, you, you would think that. I agree. <laughs> 
Um, but I said in the book, it'd be easy to call him a sex addict, but I don't believe in sex addiction. And that's where all this really began for me. Mm-hmm. Um, cuckolding, it, it actually, it actually, Simone, you were right. And cuckolding comes from a the, rooster. Um, Fucking all the, those no, hens? The, English, the old English, uh, bird, um, the cuckoo who would lay egg, he, he, the cuckoo would lay their eggs in the nest of other birds. Yeah. Fucking fly kick away. the eggs out. That's right. And, 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 and the cuckoo would then take over the nest. So That's it, so it, funny. It, I just it, thought Simone was being theatrical like she usually is, but this is like legit. <laughs> no, because I was she, doing yeah, a rooster was, sound, not yeah. a cuckoo. I did cuckoo. Uh, do not cuckoo. I, 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 don't know, I don't know what a cuckoo sound makes, but you know the cuckoo, cuckoo bird, right? Cuckoo, cuckoo. They go, um, cuckoo. And so <laughs> in old English, you know, folks were really afraid of raising the child of another man. That, that made you less manly. Well, now there are all of these folks who are really fucking turned on by the idea of their wife having sex with other men. And then the men, you know, sometimes it's about a humiliation thing. Sometimes it's a submission thing. Sometimes it's a just a thing of, hey, my wife has this really amazing sex drive and it really turns me on to see her fulfilling it with more than me. Uh-huh. You know, my wife can my wife can take on four or five guys and. And the guy is thinking, I couldn't take on four or five girls, but this is really hot. Mm-hmm. And what what attracts somebody to that? Because I feel like a lot of people would be like, why would anyone like that? Um, you know, again, I think it's a really complicated thing. And I think that there's lots of different mechanisms. One is that jealousy actually increases um, our sexual desire. And so that when a guy thinks or knows that his female partner has been with somebody else or could have been with somebody else. The guy thrusts harder and deeper when he has sex with her. He ejaculates harder. His ejaculate contains more sperm and he gets erect again sooner. So this- Because it's like a competition or something? Yeah, it's it's based on the theory of sperm competition. And so for a lot of these couples, they have found that this is a way for them to turbocharge their sexuality- and, um, you know, the wife goes off and is sexual with other men. They, she comes home to the husband and they have amazing hot sex. The, the really interesting thing is, you know, Justin Miller has a wonderful book coming out about um, sexual fantasy. He did this large survey um, of about 4,400 people around the country mm-hmm. and found that 58% of men in his survey endorsed a fantasy of watching their wife or girlfriend have sex with other men. So hmm. this is this is really, really common, and, and it's becoming more and more common because it's becoming more accepted in porn and online. Mm-hmm. Um, since, you know, since the Internet has really offered this, um, and most porn online – really kind of triggers this sperm competition stuff. Most porn online is multiple men with a single woman, not the the universal male fantasy of a man with two women. Um, and huh. the, re- the reason is because that porn triggers these same kind of competition kind of arousal urges. And what do you think is that, because I've had a lot of people ask me questions about this, but I think the I mean, obviously, cuckolding doesn't have to be in a three-way type scenario. Um, 
but folks who are, you know, saying that it's it's more comfortable for there to be two women and one man as opposed to the quote unquote devil's threesome of like two <laughs> men. That's the only kind of threesome I've ever had. <laughs> yeah, that's a better one. Uh, two men and I one. I don't know. I'm really intrigued in the <laughs> angel's threesome or God's threesome. God's threesome. Um, but you know, like w- the stigma around having two, especially hetero men, together. Um, where, yeah. where is this coming from? How do we get around that? Well, you know, I think that clearly the way to get around it is by having all of those guys watch lots of gay porn because people who watch more porn become less judgmental and less stigmatizing of sexual diversity. There actually is a, um, a great website <clears throat> called Fuck Yeah Friendly Fire, and it's actually run by a friend of mine. And it is all about porn that is celebrating guys who are comfortable being you know, sexually, you know, kind of bumping their penises against another penis while they're with a woman. Oh my gosh. Every person out there who identifies as male needs to watch this. (laughs) Yeah. If you're straight out this site. And, and, and the interesting thing is, you know, the guy who runs the website is really his intent is to help guys become more comfortable with that so that we can, so that we can break down some of this. And we can all have devil's threesomes. That's right. Now, you know, I have a question about, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, one of the really exciting things that, you know, that is coming out is, you know, I wrote that book on cuckolding back in 2009, I think, and it's become so popular. But one of the really neat, neat things now is that all of a sudden there is this big rise in gay cuckolding and men who want who get off on watching their husbands with other men. Well, that didn't happen before we legalized gay marriage. So the Supreme Court created a goddamn fetish and taboo um, by making you know marriage legal in in gay men now it was sexy to violate monogamy in a way it wasn't before so I thank actually you have Supreme this, Court mm. yeah way to go you kinky you kinky bastards I know what you're doing under your robes oh yeah um, <laughs> they're also naked but, under their robes uh, oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> but, you love that you know, um, so what, what's the difference between, I mean, is there any difference that we see in like how gay cuckolding is done versus the traditional like man, man, woman? Yeah. So, well, that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, Justin Miller and Dan Savage and I actually have an academic paper. It's the first academic paper Dan Savage has ever published, the first research he's ever been part of. Um, and we, we actually looked at these questions trying to understand. And what we found actually was really, really interesting was that in this research, the straighter a guy was, so you know these were all identified as gay men, but as they identified their sexuality and their orientation, the straighter a guy was, the more interested he was in watching his husband have sex with a guy with a big dick. Whereas, you know, gayer guys didn't really care about the size of the bull, the man who was screwing his, his husband. The bull didn't really or the care. Bull. Bull. Yeah, they call it. They they call the other man the bull, mm-hmm. and and so what we found was all of these really interesting kinds of things. Where, you know, for instance, the level of security that you have in your relationship predicted the degree to which you fantasized about your husband or partner having sex yeah. with somebody you you knew or didn't know. So that if you felt very secure in your relationship with your husband. You were comfortable fantasizing about men that your husband knew, that, that, that you know you knew in life that could be more of a threat. But if you were less secure in your relationship, 
guys were more likely to fantasize about strangers because they're less threatening to the relationship. Interesting. I want to talk about women for a hot second and this cuckolding stuff because I didn't realize that this was like a mostly male thing apparently because I think I first heard about cuckolding fantasy on that Guys We Fucked podcast, which I've listened to a couple episodes of, and I know one of the women on it has a cuckolding thing. And so I'm curious about, like, the science behind that or if it's just, in your mind, a separate thing. Well, you know, they, they call them cuck queens, um, and it is actually something we don't know a lot about right yet. We don't know a lot about women who um, who fantasize about you know, their husband or partner being sexual with other people in that kind of way. Um, We also don't know a lot about the women who are choosing to have sex with other men to to satisfy their husband's desire for cuckolding. We need to learn a lot more about Maybe you could lead some research on it. Absolutely. You can send those women my direction. (laughs) I Um, didn't mean personal research. I meant, you know, or I guess both. well, when I when I did the when I did my first book, you know, I I, I posted ads on Craigslist um, in order to interview these couples, and they would all send me naked pictures of the wife, and I would say, "Thank you very much. She's beautiful, but I'm really just interested in talking to you. I did not have <laughs> sex with any of them. I promise." That's very ethical um, of you. <laughs> I, I am an ethical researcher. Damn it. Um, Good. But you know, I th- I think the really neat thing that is happening now, and your you know your podcast is a great example of it, is that. We are hearing and talking and thinking about and being more open about aspects of sexuality that 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 we have never talked about or acknowledged before. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, we're learning so much more about how sexuality and fantasy and behavior comes out in different people. And we're learning that it turns out there kind of is no such thing as normal sexuality. You know, again, rolling everything back to when I was talking about sexual acts, you know, we can't say anymore that, you know, heterosex is normal and homosex is abnormal because it turns out that turns out it's not true. And that the, 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 the reason we thought it was abnormal was because people kept it secret. So like, what do you think is the key thing that people need to, to like, what is something that you wish that everybody knew that you think would make the world a happy, healthier sex world? That you are not the only person having these fantasies that you think make you sick and perverted. Yes. Yeah, and and the upside of the porn stuff is, I mean, look at all the categories on there. That's right. You know, I mean, someone, if you've thought of it, like someone else out there has jerked off to it, made it, fantasized about That's it right. too. Yeah. Um, I and, mean, and I totally break, agree. That, yeah, that breaks down those walls of shame and self-judgment that ultimately hurt us. And that's the... You know, that's the thing that's embedded in the whole sex addiction concept is that it is people's shame and fear of their own sexuality that is really hurting people. And can we move past that? I think it's time to. Well, one last question before we have to wrap up. And um, I know that you have received lots of shame and even legal things from folks in the sex addiction community. Um, But how have you just give us an example of maybe a time that you've been judged either for personal or professional um, sexual behaviors or speaking out against shame? Oh, I mean, gosh, you know, the, the, the number of times that, that, you know, I've been called a sex addict in denial, Ooh, you, know, ju- interesting. you know, just because you, you know, yeah, I mean, literally yesterday I got emails from people that said, well, 
you know, if you don't believe in porn addiction, then clearly you have a porn problem and you're watching lots of porn. Um, you, Any recommendations? You know, <laughs> see earlier statement about fuck yeah, friendly fire. Um, <laughs> I'm so I, excited. I think, you know, it's really about people's fear. They are afraid of people who, like you two, are you know, openly talking about and accepting in a non-judgmental way sexual diversity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that there's a generational shift that's happening. Um, I think things will look very differently um, in this in 20 and 30 years. But right now it's tough because people are afraid. And when I talk about and these issues and I say, hey, you know, sex isn't addictive. Sex isn't that scary. Sex is not bad. It really frightens people who feel like those beliefs are the only things that keep them safe. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it is a very scary thing. Well, what an edifying fucking I know we could talk about this for so long, but we are so grateful that you wanted to join us on the podcast. And if people want to follow your work and get your books, um, how can they find you? Well, you know, Nicoletta, how did you find me? <laughs> um, I messaged you on Twitter because I was like, this what? guy has some awesome shit to say. Um, and you were very responsive and willing to talk with me. So, I mean, if you have questions no. about it. And what's the yeah, Twitter really? handle? That's what we're asking for. Yeah, <laughs> it's at Dr. David Lay, at Dr. David L-E-Y. L-E-Y, sadly. Um, so yes. at Dr. David Lay across all platforms, I'm assuming. And as yep. always, if you like this podcast, make sure to subscribe to us, the Sluts and Scholars podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever. Um, and also follow us on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, Twitter at Slut Scholars. And please, please, please email us at slutsandscholars at gmail.com. We love getting your email stories, recommendations, rants. They're all so great, and we value each and every one of you. So thank you so much for hanging out with us on Sluts and Scholars. Cheers.